Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. We are continuing our series called Straight Out of Context and it's a series I'm really enjoying. Who's enjoying the series so far? I've had a lot of fun sharing it. I had fun this morning in our chapel service. And we're up to part three. Uh, And basically, Out of Context is a series uh, whereby we are looking at some of the most misused and misquoted verses in the Bible. Without the proper context, you can make the Bible say whatever it is that you want it to say. When I was a teenager, I was taught this thought, and that's one I want to put firmly uh, into your minds, and it's this, that the text without a context or its proper context is nothing more than a pretext. I've been saying that every week now, and uh, a few people have come up to me afterwards and said, hey, can you tell me what a pretext means? And maybe some of you out there are thinking the same thing. That sounds fantastic. I just don't know what a pretext is. And I'm going to give you the answer that I gave them. Go to the dictionary and look it up. And I say that with all due respect. I'm not fobbing off. I actually say that because I want to teach you how to think, not what to say or what to do. That is not my role. My role is not to tell you what to say and what to do. My job as a pastor, my job as a teacher, my job as a parent, my job as a husband is not to tell people what to do. My job is to teach you how to think. And so if you don't know what a word means, here's a revelation. There is a thing called a dictionary and all you got to do is open it up and find out what a particular word means and uh, you will be enlightened. Having said that, I'm going to be kind this morning because I did go to the dictionary and I'm going to help you out. It simply means a reason given in justification of a cause of action that is not the real reason. In other words, if we have the text without the context, we are going to come up with notions and thoughts based upon feelings and and ideas other than the truth. And it's not going to reflect what is actually being said in the Scriptures. Amen. And so we've been looking at a number of verses. Week number one, we looked at the notion that you can ask God anything. And we brought some explanation to that verse. We looked last week at do not judge. And hopefully we brought some answers and clarity to that particular verse. And today, oh, I'm so excited about this one. We are looking at the verse, I know the plans you have for me. And of course, for many of us born-again believers that have been in church for many, many years, we know exactly where that is. It's in the Old Testament, found in the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 29, verse 11. Let's read it. It'll be up on the screen. It says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, yes, and not to harm you. Amen. Plans to give you a hope. Who wants hope? And a future. Awesome. It kind of reads like a Christian motivational poster, doesn't it? Uh, Wait a minute. It actually is a Christian motivational poster. It's actually a Christian motivational fridge magnet. And it comes in a T-shirt as well. And you can even get it on a coffee mug. I know some people have even had it tattooed on their body. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you. (laughs) 
to give you hope and a future. It was Bible Gateway's second most shared verse of 2013. This scripture is mostly used in a very self-absorbed way. For example, you may have woken up on the wrong side of the bed. Don't worry, God has a plan for you today. Or maybe you had a tough day at work. Anyone have a tough day at work this week? Maybe, yep. Take a breath. Your future is bright. I remember meeting a friend of mine and uh, I'd always ask him, I'd say, how are you going? He says, I'm good, but don't worry, I'll get better. Just a... <laughs> Maybe money's a bit tight. Who would like more money? Yeah. Money's a bit tight. Well, relax. God is going to prosper you. Cha-ching. <laughs> this notion that God is going to prosper you out of context leads to why people walk away from God. See, when we don't feel prosperous, we conclude, as we have over the last couple of weeks, that God is not real, that He doesn't care, and that He's not good. Because we've taken a context or a scripture, sorry, out of context. We've put our own meaning to it. And when that meaning doesn't transpire the way we wanted it to, when we wanted it to, we say, God is not real. He doesn't care and He's not good. And so when it comes to interpreting the Bible correctly, we've learnt over the last few weeks some things that we need to do. Three things. One, we need to know and understand the context. That is that we need to know who wrote the book. We need to know to whom it was written. We need to understand its major theme. We need to know what God was trying to say through the author. Secondly, we need to interpret Scripture with other Scriptures. The best way to understand the Bible is with the Bible itself. In other words, what do other verses say about my favourite verse? What do the verses say before that verse? And what do the verses say after that verse? The best way to interpret the Bible is with the Bible itself. And the third thing we've learned over the last few weeks is that we need to apply that which we have learnt. The Bible is not a book to be studied so much as a letter to be lived. Everything that's in the Word of God, everything that Jesus Himself taught, uh, application was expected. Jesus didn't just say some profound things for us to be able to lock it away in our mind and uh, prove how smart we are. No, He expected us to put into practice the Word of God. So these three things are going to help us understanding Scriptures, hopefully from this day forth. And so with this in mind, let's read Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 in its proper context. And in order to do that, we need a bit of background, which is found in the previous chapters and verses. And what you'll find out is, number one, that the author of the book was Jeremiah, hence the name of the book. And Jeremiah was writing a letter to the Jewish exiles those that had been taken from their homeland, Israel, and were living in captivity in a place called Babylon. And this was due to their disobedience, their rebellion, and their idol worship. And God said that they would be in exile, that they would live in the land of Babylon for 70 years. Everyone say 70. That's an important thing. He said 70 years. And then when we read chapter 28 and the preceding verses of verse 11, you'll see that there's a bit of a showdown between two people. 
One's a false prophet, one's a prophet of God. The false prophet's name is Hananiah. And the true prophet is Jeremiah. And Hananiah was saying to the, uh, those in exile, hey, don't worry, this will not last long. In actual fact, the exile will only last for two years. And I don't know about you, but being in exile for two years is much better than 70 years. I mean, this is good news. This false prophet is bringing good news. And I don't know about you, but if I had the choice of two years or 70 years, I would choose two years any day of the week. And that's exactly what was happening. People were choosing what the false prophet was saying. But here's the problem. The problem with what the false prophet was saying was it was simply not true. It was good news, but it wasn't true. In other words, it was false good news. Good news, but it wasn't true. There's lots of good news out there, but the question is, is it true? I could say to you, hey, you're all going to have a million dollars by the end of the day, says the Lord. That's good news. I just don't think it's true. I can't back it up with any substance. And that's what Hananiah, this false prophet, was doing. And uh, Jeremiah's response was classic. This is what he said. He said to the false prophet, Jeremiah says, Hananiah, you're wrong. You're going to die. And within a year, he was dead. Hananiah, the false prophet, lied and he died. Just like Ananias and Sapphira, they lied and they died. Let's read in Jeremiah 28, verse 15. It says, Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you. I mean, this is strong. Yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies, and therefore this is what the Lord says. I'm about to remove you from the face of the earth. This very year you are going to die because you have preached rebellion against the Lord. And in the seventh month of the same year, Hananiah the prophet died. Wow. I mean, this is just crazy. For any guy out there that likes action thriller type movies, you're going to love the Bible. The Bible is full of action. It's full of thrillers. It's full of bloodshed. People die. People get born. There's romance. It's got all those good things that we love about movies. So don't ever tell me that the Bible is boring. But it gets better. Jeremiah then goes on to counteract the lie that the false prophet had told them. Because he said, you're only going to be here for two years, uh, he was just basically saying, you know what? You're not going to be here long. Don't buy homes. Don't settle down. And, and, and it's kind of the notion that the rapture theology created in the church, particularly in the 80s and 90s, that because Jesus Christ is coming back, hey, drop out of school. Hey, don't get a job. Hey, why, why bother getting a mortgage? Or worse still, let's get a really big mortgage because we won't have to pay it off. Jesus is coming back. I know how you're thinking. I know. Because we have this rapture mentality that we're not going to be around long. And that's what Hananiah had created in the people. Hey, don't settle down. You're not going to be here long. Eat, drink and be merry. Tomorrow we're going to be back home. And Hananiah, uh, sorry, Jeremiah refutes that. And then he puts this letter together to say to them the exact opposite, to take the lie out of their head. He says, now I want you, Israelites, you exiles in Babylon, I want you to live your lives. I want you to get on with living. 
I want you to build houses. I want you to plant vineyards. I want you to get married. I want you to have kids. I want you to settle down. And this was distributed by the elders of the people. And elders, particularly in New Testament, Old Testament times, were elderly. And they were preaching something they were not going to see with their own eyes. I want to say, church, I don't know how much of what God has placed in my heart that I'm actually going to see with my own eyes. I can't even guarantee I'll see any one of my kids married. But I teach them and I put something into them that even if I wasn't around for that day, they would live on with a legacy of my teaching. And we're going to have this mentality that this life is going to go on beyond us. And so we want to pour ourselves out into this generation for the next generation. Are you with me? And he says, and when 70 years is complete, not before, but when 70 years is complete, I'm going to bring you back to the homeland. And then we find our favourite verse in verse 11 comes into its context. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, plans to give you a hope and a future. The important point in remember, to remember when reading the Bible is that there are some specific promises and there are some general promises. Real simple. Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11 is a specific promise. Everyone say specific. It's a specific promise, which means it's to a specific group of people under specific circumstances during a specific time in a specific place. In other words, it's not specifically to us, but to the nation of Israel that were in exile in Babylon thousands of years ago. I often feel like saying to people who say, I know the plans I have for you. I was going to say, when was the last time you were in Babylon in exile? Because <laughs> that's who God was talking to through his prophet Jeremiah. You see, it's dangerous when we apply a general promise, or sorry, a specific promise in a general way. I'll say it again. It's really dangerous when we take a specific promise given to a specific group of people at a specific time in a specific circumstance and we take that for us today. We're in danger of distorting Scripture. Now, I know some of you, many of you in this place, it's probably your favourite verse. And you're probably thinking about smashing your cups, <laughs> ripping up your T-shirts, and some are going to get laser surgery and remove their tattoos. <laughs> to you, I want to say, don't panic. Because there is a general application for this verse, for all of us, all of the time. And I hope that when we finish, you'll love this verse even more. But in order to us apply this verse, we need to understand biblically what a prosperous life is and what a prosperous life is not. So there is a general promise to us that we can apply for our lives today. But in order for us to apply it, we need to understand what a, a, prosper, a prosperous life is and what a prosperous life is not. And so in the remainder of my time, I want to look at three things. Everyone say three things, three things about the prosperous life. And the first one is simply this. A prosperous life is not the goal. A prosperous life must never be the goal. 
When we make prosperity the goal, we miss the mark. See, God is not a genie in a bottle that is there for your every command. That we, we rub the bottle and say, I want a new house. I want a new car. I want a better life. I never want to get sick. I pray that no bad thing ever happens to me. I mean, all that's good news. I mean, isn't that good news? I mean, imagine that. New homes, new cars, no sickness, no bad things. Good news, the trouble is it's not true. It's false good news. And anyone who's propagating that kind of gospel is preaching a false gospel, just as Hananiah, the Old Testament false prophet, did. And it needs to be refuted with truth. There is some good news, however, and it's called the gospel. The gospel is good news. See, here's the good news. It is not that God saves us from our trials. It's that God has saved us from our sin. And I want you to preach back at me at this point in time because this is good. And we need to get it into our spirit. See, Jesus, here's the, here's the gospel in a nutshell, that Jesus Christ came to earth and He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The Bible says it this way, He who knew no sin became sin for us. It goes on to say that He died for us in our place. And the Bible says that we're to fix our eyes on Him, not prosperity, but Him, say Him. It's on Him that we're to fix our eyes because He's the author and He's the perfecter of our faith. He's the Alpha, He's the Omega. He's the beginning and the end and He's everything in between. And so everything you ever need on any day of your life, He is there able to help you. That is the good news. And the good news is that Christ loves you. He died for you. He rose again for you. He lives for you. He intercedes for you and He's for you. And if God be for us, who can be against us? I want to tell this is the prosperity gospel at its best and it's not found in things it's found in a man and his name is Jesus this is the good news this is the gospel Jesus himself is the goal 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 8 and 9 says though we have not seen him you love him And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving what? The goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's the goal of our faith? It's not money. It's not a new home. It's not health. It's not a life without problems. The goal of our faith is a man. And He's a man like no other man. And His name is Jesus. This is the prosperous life, understanding and having Christ in our life. The prosperous life is a life with Christ. The main point is not that you would get all that you want, but that Christ would be with us. That's the goal, that Christ be with us. And if Christ be with us, then what can be against us? Maybe for some homework, read the first three or even the first two chapters of Ephesians and you'll read about those that are found in Christ. It says in Christ, it's in Christ, it's in Christ, it's in Christ, it's in Christ that we live and move and we have our being. When you've got God, you've got all you need. 
I'm old enough to remember, so if you're my age and older, you may remember this too. But in the mid-90s, there was a definite move of God. And it broke out in different parts of the world. Um, One particular part of the world that uh, got quite popular for this move of God was in Canada, in a place called Toronto. So much so that this move of God became known as the Toronto Blessing. And it was a genuine, bona fide move of God. It was a hungry group of people just seeking the face of God, and God showed up. And when God shows up, anything can happen. And anything did happen. It was kind of like uh, beyond description. Uh, One of the things that marked that move was incredible joy. And God was taking broken people, hurting people, particularly Christian people, people that had served God for many years in ministry and were tired, jaded, burnt out, uh, you know, overcome with anxiety. And God just poured out His Spirit and brought a refreshing on His people, a genuine, bona fide move of God as they sought His face. But as with so many things that take place, to every truth there's a counterfeit. The Bible says the devil tries to masquerade as an angel of light. And so after a while, this genuine, bona fide move of God was no longer about God, but it was more about the manifestations of God. And so people would come not seeking God, but seeking a touch from God. In other words, they were seeking the healing, not the healer. They were seeking the blessing, not the blessor. And it was almost like if you didn't fall over and if you didn't laugh, you got ripped off. You want your money back. And that's what this genuine move of God got turned into. So much so, a friend of mine went to a particular church in that area many years later. And he was shocked at what he saw. Some guy bought a blow-up pool and he blew it up in the service and just put himself in the pool and started, I don't know, splashing around with no water in the pool. And my friend asked, he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm swimming in the river of God. One, it wasn't a river. It was a blow-up pool. And two, there was no water in it. It got weird. It got weird. And then that's what happens when we take our eyes off the prize. And we make the goal anything but Jesus himself. It will get weird And what God intended for good will come to an end. We see that many years earlier in the Old Testament when God's people were being rebellious yet again and uh, a bunch of snakes were set upon the people and started biting people and they started getting sick and dying. And the people cried out to God yet again, save us. And so they were instructed to make a bronze snake and that bronze snake was put on a pole and stuck up in the air and people who looked up at the bronze snake were healed of their snake bites. And that became like a type of Christ. As we look to Christ, we find our healing, etc. And so it's like a type of Christ. And and so it was a very helpful tool in their hands at that time. But over time, that tool became an object of worship to the point what was once helpful had to be smashed and broken. God is not against blessing you. God is not against giving things to us. But the moment we take our eyes off Jesus and start looking to the things that he gives us, we miss the mark. We are to seek his face, not just his hand. 
In Jeremiah 29, verse 13, you've only got to read on two more verses and this is what you'll come up with. You will seek me and you'll find me. When? When you seek me with all of your heart. Not when you seek prosperity. Not when you seek a new house. You'll never find God seeking a new house. You'll never find God seeking a new car. You'll never find God seeking a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife. You'll never seek God. You'll never find God seeking those things. You'll, seek, you'll find God when you seek Him. Number one, a prosperous life is not the goal. Everyone say, not the goal. Number two, a prosperous life is more than economic well-being. Now, can I just say this is a clause? It can include financial blessing. See what I did there? I said it can, not it will. And I didn't say it won't. I didn't say it will or it won't. I said it can. Financial blessing can be part of the prosperous life. But here's the thing, church. It's much, much more than that. If you think of the prosperous life in terms of dollars and cents, you are falling way short of the bigness of our God. Some other translations use the word wholeness and welfare. The actual word prosper in its original language, which is the Hebrew, Old Testament was written in Hebrew, the New Testament was written in Greek. So when you go back to the original language, you'll see the word prosper is a word shalom. And the word shalom means peace. The theological word book of the Old Testament defines it as completeness, wholeness, harmony, fulfillment, unimpaired relationships with others and with God. In other words, the emphasis on the word is not on the economic prosperity, but more on the positive relationship with others. I'm not going to kid myself. We have been blessed in many ways, and one of them would be financially. We've been blessed. And we live in a nice home as a result of that blessing. I'm not going to denounce that or deny that. Uh, I think we've been blessed. But that's not what makes me feel rich. What makes me feel truly rich and blessed and prosperous are the people that live in that home. It's the relationships I keep. It's the marriage that I have. It's the three incredible kids that God has graced us to be able to look after for a period in time. I thank God for that. That's what makes me feel rich. I thank God for this building, the one that we put together some six years ago. And it's an amazing blessing and I thank God for it. But more important, I thank God for who is in it. When I think of the church, I don't think of our building. I think of the precious people, those that have uh, just had incredible blessings and those that are going through hardships and everyone in between. I thank God. That's what makes me feel rich. I just said to some person today, I said, we, we are so richer. Our church is so richer for you being in it. And I wasn't implying that they give a cent. I just, just you being here. And I feel that way about each and every one of you. You being here is what makes me feel like a rich, prosperous and blessed person. When I think about my recent sickness, although it's something I can't fully explain, what I can tell you categorically, absolutely, is the incredible peace that I've had during this time. And it's a peace I would never have known anything of without going through such a trial. I can categorically say that I've had a near-death experience uh, the doctors actually said, had I not had health on my side, possibly this thing would have taken me out and I would have gone to be with Jesus. They never said it that way, but that's the way I see it. And uh, I thank God that through this tough trial, I found Christ in a way 
that I'd never found him before. And there's a peace. And it's that peace that I've been living in which makes me feel like a truly blessed man. I don't want any of you to get upset on my behalf because that shouldn't happen to you. You're a pastor, you're a Christian. I appreciate the sentiment, but I don't feel that way at all. I feel like God allowed me to go through something to show me another facet of who he is that I'd never seen before. He took me through something to give me another dimension of his peace that I'd never experienced before. And as a result, church, I feel truly blessed. I would not wish what I've been through uh, on anyone. And I personally don't want to have to go through it again. But I can categorically say I would do it again. And I'm glad I went through it because of what I've experienced. And what I've experienced has made me a truly rich, blessed and prosperous man. Can I just say, when it comes to material things, again, God wants to bless you, even in material ways, but sometimes it doesn't always equal dollars and cents in your hand. I remember as a young kid, first getting my car and having to fill up with petrol, and I remember for years and years and years, I put $20 in my car for petrol, and it always lasted a week. No matter where I went, no matter what I did, $20 for years and years and years and years and years, and the price of the petrol went up and up and up, and all I ever did is put the same amount in. I thought, God, you really do drive my dollar further. You really do. It's like a slogan, isn't it? It's like a... But I have experienced that over and over again. And I hear people say, oh, my tyre blue and this blue and that blue. And I think, my gosh, Lord, you have just looked after my tyres. You've looked after my engine. I think you really have blessed me. It didn't equal dollars and cents in my hand. But there's so many other ways God blesses you. And, and, and I remember the Amy Grant song. She sang this song about angels all around. And there are near misses all around you. And she talks about the angels at work. I tell you, when, when we get to heaven, we're going to see some worn out angels. You know, like, man, Tony, you kept me busy, man. Stopping cars and, and stopping people. I mean, just like, and we don't even know. There's, there's many things we haven't even thanked God for because we didn't even know He was doing it. He's so gracious. More often than not, He works in the background just doing what God does because He's a God of love. He loves us. What has God ever done for me? Where did you get to heaven? You go, oh my goodness, I never knew that. All these angels with scars all over them, just like. <laughs> amazing. In 3 John verse 2, it says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul is prospering. I love the good news of the gospel of Christ. The first thing, the prosperous life is not the goal. The second thing, the prosperous life is more than economic well-being. Which brings me to my third and final point of the bank income. The prosperous life is not void of suffering. See, plans to prosper you sounds like the easy life. I mean, when, when you read Jeremiah 11, you don't think of hardship. You don't think of pain. You just think of escape. You think of freedom. You think of riches. You think of blessing. But that's not what Jeremiah is saying. In actual fact, the prosperous life is not always an easy life. And even the exiles themselves experienced that. Among the exiles at that time was a man by the name of Daniel. And Daniel loved God so much, he wouldn't comply with some of the king's commands. 
He refused to worship, bow down to anything but the true God. And that got him into trouble. This young man, Daniel, who was incredibly wise and had blessed the king. The king's rule and reign was blessed and prosperous as a result of men like Daniel in his hometown. But the agitators stirred up the people and had Daniel thrown into the lion's den. I mean, this doesn't sound like, I know the plans you have for me, says the Lord. Plans to prosper me as he's walking to the lion's den. And it wasn't like God intervened. He actually got thrown in with the lions. And there he spent a night with those lions. The king rushed down to see what had happened to Daniel. And by morning, he saw Daniel in the lion's den with four pets, four little kitty cats with big manes and big teeth that the Lord had managed to keep their mouths shut. The prosperous life is not void of suffering. But by going through that trial, Daniel experienced a prosperity and a hope and a future that he never would have had he not gone through that trial. Daniel's not the only one. He had three friends who were also part of the exile. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And they, like Daniel, loved the Lord, their God. And one day they were out amongst the people and the king came out. And at that moment, everyone was meant to bow down and worship the king before his golden image. And everyone bowed down except three guys. It's kind of like the feeling you have when you're down the front for the prayer line and everyone falls down and you're the only one standing. That's how they felt. It's like, um, we're the only one standing. And the king was enraged that they would not bow down and worship him. And, And I love this. He stoked up the fire seven times hotter than normal. And he said, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, we're going to throw you in this fire unless you denounce your God and worship me. And they said, no, King, we can't do that. And what I love is at that moment, they didn't throw in their favourite verse. They didn't say, no, King, we can't do that. For we know the plans God has for us, plans to prosper us, plans to give us a hope and a future. He didn't say that. They actually had a better understanding of that verse than we do thousands of years later. They said, we believe that our God can indeed help us and rescue us and save us from your fiery furnace. For we know the plans. No, 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 he doesn't do that. He says, comma, but even if he doesn't. Does your theology have room for even if he doesn't? It better. Otherwise, you're going to give up on God and think that he's not real. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care. It's not true. You've got to have room in your theology. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship you. And so they were thrown into this fire. It was so hot that the guards that threw them in, they died of heat exhaustion. They died. 
And then the king's looking down on the flames and he says, didn't I tell you to throw in those three men? They said, yes, we did. They said, well, why is there four? One was like an angel. Theologians suggest that that fourth man in the fire was Christ Himself, standing with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, just as He will stand with you. And it says, and they walked out and they didn't even have the smell of fire on them. I think that's the miracle. Have you ever stood around a campfire? I mean, you've got to throw everything in the wash. You've even got to give your car a wash. Everything, everything stinks of smoke. But these were standing in the fire and they didn't even smell a smoke. But that's not why they were worshipping God because He would protect them. They were thrown in the fire because they refused to worship anything but the living God. And if it means suffering, then suffer we will. If it means being misunderstood, then being misunderstood we will. Because the prosperous life is not void of suffering. Church, we've got to understand the prosperous life is not void of suffering. If somebody ever told you that when you become a Christian, it will be all right and everything will go fine and you'll never have any problems, it's a false gospel. I believe we as believers have our opportunity to shine, our brightest when things are at their darkest. When things aren't going well, that's when we have the opportunity to show the world the hope that we have. What about Paul? Paul, the author of most of the New Testament, probably the greatest apostle outside of Jesus himself. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night in the day in the open sea. Can anyone compete with that? He's just getting started though. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in dangers from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles. When you're in danger from Jews and Gentiles, there's nobody else. It's just everybody. In danger in the city, in danger in the country. I'm telling you, once you take out the city and the country, there's nowhere else on the land. If it's not country, it's city. If it's not city, it's country. He was experiencing troubles in both. In danger at the sea. And in danger from false believers, I've laboured, I've toiled, I've gone without food and gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've, not, and I've often gone without food and I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of the concern I have for all the churches. Not only do you have to endure physical pain, but the pain of the church, getting it wrong and messing up and falling away. Earlier he says, I toiled more than all of you. This notion that I... They they ask too much of you at the church. Seriously, trying to tell Paul. I I just meant trying to someone tell Paul that. See, Christian living promises persecution, and he uses our trials to conform us into the image of Christ. He's not interested in our temporary well-being. He is shaping us for eternal glory, and that's why Paul goes on to say in Corinthians, "Therefore, we don't lose heart." Though we're outwardly wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed 
For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. You see, church, in our trials there is hope, and in our trials we have a future. And when we seek His face, and not just His hand, we begin to see how prosperous we really are. And we begin to see that there is a hope in our trials. And we begin to see that in our trials, we really do have a future. Will you stand with me this morning? This whole meeting this morning is just part one of what I'm believing God is wanting to do tonight. A coming together a worshipping together. And the goal of tonight's meeting is not that God would do anything, but that we would meet with Him. And more often than not, when we meet with God, God does some crazy, incredible, amazing, beautiful, wonderful things. And I'd hate any of you to miss out on that. Will you close your eyes for a moment? Father, we thank you for your incredible kindness and goodness to each and every one of us in this room. And we see with the light of proper context that you're not going to bless us. You already have blessed us. That we are living the prosperous life. That you've already done so much for us. And I pray that through this meeting, you've been softening our hearts and some of the stuff that has stuck over the weeks and months and possibly even years would begin to get softer. And that even as we meet together tonight, there'd be a breaking off and a shedding off of things that have held us bound. Holy Spirit, won't you have your way in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds. Help us, Holy Spirit, to renew our minds this morning. We ask that all, Lord, in your wonderful name. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au. 